everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Now we're wired for sound. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. Uh, before we get into the message for today, just wanted to share two things with you. Um, first, uh, if you weren't here last week, you may have come in and you've been like, there's stuff on the wall. That's pretty cool. Um, this is part of an art project uh, that my friend Beth has led a small team with to make happen for us. But um, just the, the quick nugget on this is back in June, we had a sermon where we just asked folks, um, what word comes to mind when you think about uh, what's life like without Jesus? And tons, I mean, we had hundreds of words come in. And so uh, from the back of the room, it just looks like tiles. If you get closer, you'll start to see, oh, there's words on each one of these tiles. And um, it's mesmerizing when you just come stand at the base and just look at, like, how do people feel about this? Um, you're invited. If that's something that if you weren't there for um, or if you've had more thoughts since then, there's blank tiles that are down here. Uh, and you can write that on there and just put, put, put it right on the wall. And then it will become a part of this art installation. Also, if you're, you were here last week, you, you might be thinking there were not nearly that many tiles on there. Um, this is a, it's a growing art piece. And so you're going to see over the course of the next several weeks, something start to take shape from this. But it's a mystery and I'm not supposed to give it away. So don't ask. Um, the other thing that I just wanted you to be aware of, um, we uh, for about a year and a half have been without a formal worship arts director at our church. And so we have begun that search, um, but that job is posted on our website right now. If there's somebody that you know that you go, they are excellent. Um, they've done this before. They could be a great fit here at Discovery. Um, we're just getting the word out. And so if you want to send them to our website, you can find that information there. Okay. If we're going to understand our text for today, I think we've got to get in kind of an amorous mode. You want to hear, we, we, we need some love stories this morning if we're really going to get this. Um, I wanted to share with you Harry's love story. Harry has a weird love story. When he, when he was six years old, he was in Sunday school at his church in Independence, Missouri, and a little five-year-old girl with brown curly, cur- curly hair walked in, and he was smitten right away. For the rest of his life, Harry would never love another girl. And in six, when he was six, um, he went up to her and said, Hi. And she kind of like nervously just smiled back at him and then turned around and walked the other direction. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. And through uh, elementary school and junior high, any chance he could get to be around Bess Wallace. Oh, he just loved Bess Wallace. And usually he would go up to her and he would say hi. She would warmly smile back and then turn around and walk the other way. When they got to high school, Harry would often ask Bess if he could walk her home, and uh, rarely would he get a yes, and when he would get a yes, he would ask, can I carry your books for you? And she would look at him, and she would smile warmly, and she would say, no. (laughs) But he got to walk with Bess, and those were some of his best memories from high school. When they got out of high school, um, life kind of started to go some different directions. She moved to a town that was far away, but thankfully, it was, she lived right across the street from Harry's aunt and uncle. Totally serendipitous. It's amazing. So he would find excuses to go visit his aunt and uncle. Oftentimes, he would figure out if the neighbors across the street had given them a cake, when that cake would be finished so that he could go visit them and take the empty cake pan back to Bess's house to give it back. And when he would, she would never come to the door because she'd be looking out a window and would see him coming. But whoever would answer the door, he would say, hey, is Bess, is Bess available? And it would be your mom or dad would say, oh, Harry, let me go check. And usually would come back and say, 
You know what, she's not available today, but it didn't matter. He started writing letters uh, in uh, December, December 31st, 1910, was the first letter that he wrote. Um, and it was the first of a torrent of letters that he was sending her. Her dad had just passed away. Um, There's a lot shifting in her life, and mainly out of a place of just wanting to encourage her, somebody that had known her for a long time, just wanted to send a note. He wrote the words, if you see fit to let me hear from you sometimes, I shall certainly appreciate it. <laughs> she did write back. So that was New Year's Eve. He wrote her twice in January, twice in February, three times in March, and in April and May, and for the first part of June, it was once a week. Harry loved Bess Wallace. Uh, that started to develop into him saying, hey, can I, can I take you out? Um, which usually she would smile nicely, and look back at him and say, no. <laughs> but sometimes those no's became yeses, and so they started to date, and that played into more letters and more of Harry just wanting, wanting to pursue Bess Wallace. Then he wrote a letter uh, that's hilarious when you read it. He opens up with his letter talking about the weather. It's been very dry here. I really wish that it would rain. I'll need to drink whiskey rather than water because there's just so little water. Water and potatoes will soon be as much of a luxury as pineapples and diamonds, he wrote. <laughs> Boring letter, Perry. Come on. And maybe having by accident written the word diamonds, he decided to just go for it. Speaking of diamonds, would you wear a solitaire on your left hand, should I ask and get you one? After this, he lets his emotions run loose. You may not have guessed it, but it's, I've been crazy about you ever since we went to Sunday school together, but I never had the nerve to think that you'd even look at me. I don't think so now, but I can't keep from telling you what I think of you. Bess had told him she was tired of reading love stories in these books that they would read and would mail to each other, but Harry had a special interest in one love story. I'm trying one from real life on you, he writes. I guess it sounds funny to you, but you must bear in mind that this is my first experience in this line of work, and also it's very real to me. Oh, man. Stick with that, Harry. That's good. He wrote two more follow-up letters because she never wrote back after that. Two more letters. Did you, did you give my letter about the pineapples and the proposal? <laughs> did that? Nothing. Finally, he decided that he would just go up for a visit. Um, he had wrote to say that he was coming, and that letter stayed purely in the friend category. He tried not to stray into talks of love, and by the end of that Saturday, when he went up to visit, Beth had, Beth had decided to allow her relationship to Harry to go back to what it was before the proposal. Two and a half years later, sat down at a desk, and he wrote Bess what he said was one of the craziest letters of his life. He couldn't bring himself to send it, so he wrote a second letter. And he didn't like that one either, and so he tried again and wrote a third, and this one was five pages long, and he mailed it. Five pages of carefully crafted overture that caught the heart he had always had for her and the hope of all that they could become together. He assured her that she would never have to worry about him giving some slushy proposal ever again, or at least for the time being. But if he someday made enough money so that if he could give her a second chance, he would have a good home for them and that things could be different. After that, Bess told Harry that her feelings toward him had changed 
since she rejected his first proposal two and a half years before. She said she felt now that if they ever did get married, it would be to him. They did not announce their engagement for another four years after that, and they were not married for another two years after their engagement. This is a loving pursuit of Harry towards Bess Wallace. Uh, you may recognize it from the picture. There's no way I could have, but if you're thinking what famous person named Harry or Bess was happening around 1910 through the 1940s, Harry Truman became president of the United States in 1945 and would go on to write all kinds of letters following up World War II, <laughs> all of the things that hit his presidency, and he went to his death saying, that letter was the craziest one I ever wrote. To the girl I met when I was six, to the one that I had been in love with and waited for and waited for. And I never got weird. I never forced anything. I just continued to show up and say I love you. I'm still here. Oh, okay. I'm getting a little mushy. We're getting loose. Let's go, y'all. This is going to be fun. That is a good story for today. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 19 and 20 this morning. And Jesus won't be telling love stories here, at least not overtly. But I think if you get underneath what he's talking about, you're going to find that Harry Truman and Bess Wallace are just, they're just lurking. They're right there. It's that kind of a study. So uh, a couple things we need to know before we get too far in. Um, back, <laughs> back in Matthew 18, a really strange question popped up from his disciples. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answered it by bringing a child into the middle of the room. He says, you gotta, you gotta learn to be like a child. This is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the conversation has continued. He's continued to talk about child likeness. We talked about that a couple weeks ago here. It's so much fun, like Jesus' perspective on things. Now, there's gonna be a quick uh, interlude, um, and we're not gonna have time to get into it today, but some of the religious leaders come and they ask Jesus this funny question about marriage and divorce. And I wish, I, I, ah, I really wish we could get into it. We just don't have time. But that's, that's something that will absolutely be coming up in the years to come. Um, but you're invited. You can check that out. That's right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 19. But he, he finishes some of that time talking about children and talking to his students going, don't you dare put anything in the way of these kids coming to me. And once we get into chapter 19, we see a whole group of kids coming towards Jesus and the disciples going, shoo, get away. <laughs> it's like these guys are a little slow sometimes. Um, Jesus says, don't, don't shoo them away. Like they're coming to me for a blessing. Some of them are coming to me for healing. And it says as we get into our text for the day, he, he was just loving kids. It's awesome. And then we see in stark contrast another kid come walking his way. Uh, this one is a young man, actually. He's quite wealthy, as it turns out. And we're going to catch up in chapter 19, verse 16. And it says this. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whew, all right. And then the young man said to him, I've kept all of these. <laughs> Either he's lying, or this guy's amazing. 
and we get a little bit more. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Okay, can you feel a little bit of the contrast? Like Jesus has just been spending time around all these children. Now we have a very grown-up child, very grown-up, coming to him saying, hey, I've done all the tasks I've crossed off the list of to-dos that God gave me, and it just still feels like something's off. I love this, because I think in our culture today, the gospel of our culture is often be a good person. And, and in here, we have a guy who's going, okay, check, I've done that. And I, I, like, I'm still missing, it's not enough. Like, I'm not, that is, it's not getting me there. So he knows that a rabbi is coming through town, a guy who seems to know some stuff, and he goes, look, I, I've become a good person, and it, this isn't it. What more must I do? And there's some fun that we can have with this guy. This story shows up in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and John's always the weird one, right? Like, he does his own thing. But the fact that all three of these authors in their stories of Jesus pick up this particular story this guy's, this story is, is important. Like we want to be paying such good attention to it. The word that's used to describe this young man, uh, uh, um, Philo would pick it up, Neaniskos. Uh, Mitch Pencer's gonna correct me on that second service. Neaniskos. Uh, this is a word that would usually designate a young man between the ages of 21 and 28. So let's just shoot the middle and say, okay, we've got a 25-year-old guy on our hands. Guys, what were you thinking of when you were 25? Some of you are 25 right now, and you're like, I'll come up on stage and tell you what I'm thinking about. A lot of times, at least for me, I would say, I was thinking about who I'm going to marry someday. And if I'm thinking about that, I'm going to think about, well, what kind of a home are we going to live in, and where are we going to live? And if I'm thinking about that, i got to be thinking about, okay, where, where am I at right now in my job, and what am I going to be doing next so that I can start lining, like, my whole life at 25, the world is my oyster, but I want to grab it by the horns because I have dreams, and I have hopes and desires, and those are good. But this is also a guy that we can read into his story. As he's doing all that, he's looking at God, like the God of the universe, and saying, what does he want from me? And man, he's been careful. Like he's worked so hard to make sure that he's dotting his I's and crossing his T's, and he's living a righteous life. I, I want to highlight, just going back to chapter 18 real quick, what was the question that the disciples asked Jesus? Who is the greatest? And I think in this young man is part of Jesus' answer. Who's the greatest? Well, you might want to point at a guy like this. He's young, he's ambitious, he's humble, he follows God. Is this the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I think Jesus might be asking. And I think Matthew as a writer is going, I want you to start seeing what I'm doing here. Be a good person. It's not enough. That is actually not good news at the end of all things. Jesus, in his response, meets him right where he's at. He gives him the list. And I, I think Jesus, I always want to be careful of assuming that Jesus is looking, you know, through like, I know everything all the time. I think he just looks at this guy and he's going, well, have you, have you, have you heard the, the story before? Have you heard what God wants of all of us? Here's some of the things. And he goes, I've heard the story. I've worked really hard towards the things. But Jesus, how do I gain heaven and it's a really funny answer, I think. Jesus says, look, go sell all your stuff. 
then you'll have treasure in heaven. But then the real answer to his question is the very last thing that he says. Come follow me. How, how are you going to understand heaven? What, like, where does this gospel of be a good person fall short? Well, it's, it's a gospel without me in it. You want to know life? You want to know eternal life? Come follow me. Be with me. And with everything that we've been doing in the book of Matthew, you can make your own connecting the dots here of what, what Jesus is doing with. Here's what the Old Testament has said. I am not replacing it. I'm affirming it. I'm also going to paint a picture of something so grand on top of it and with it. Oh, so he's doing that with this guy. You've had this story. I'm going to do something even bigger with it. It's not a command of a task. Come be with me. This is a command of being. Come be with me. Spend time with me. I want to be with you. Can you hear Harry Harry Truman busting through a little bit? Hey man, I, I like you. I think if you want to do life together, this is not a marriage proposal from Jesus to this guy, but it is a life proposal. The things I can see us doing together, I I want to be, I want to do this with you. Come be with me. It's not a a list of tasks that he gives him. And I think it's the hardest thing for a 25 year old guy to hear, or a 25 year old person for that matter. Because what this asks of him, He's got dreams. He's thinking about who he's going to marry someday and where he's going to live and and to sell everything that he's got. He's worked so hard to get to this point. I mean, he's been careful and intentional. And now he's just going to get rid of it all, like chuck the whole thing. It's not just chucking what I've built so far, but that represents everything that I have moving forward. Who am I going to marry now? Who's going to want to marry me? Where am I going to live? I'm going to be following you. I won't even get to choose. And I think it's those things for this young guy that start to rattle around in his soul where he goes, I, I, I just can't trust that. I, I hear that you want me to be with you. No problem with the communication. I just don't know if it's going to lead me where I want to go. And there's this trust that comes in. Man, can you hear Bess Wallace? I don't know about you. Warm smile, but no. Man. And he goes away. And and all three of the authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all write. He doesn't just turn around and walk off. He turns away sad. Like he's really troubled by this, which I think will be really fun, a fun detail to pull in later. But he, what's so clear to me about this is that Jesus is saying, follow me. He's not saying, never get married, never work, never own a home. That's not the point. Is he saying no more happiness for you? It's not the point. So then it's clear that what this guy is being asked to give up is control. Control over the time he wants to date people. Control over when and how he accumulates wealth. Control over his life's direction. Control over who he becomes. He's being asked to give up control of whose voice directs his life. To put it another way, he's being asked to consider who's the greatest in your life. Is it you? Will you continue to make the decisions that you think best for the life that you want for yourself? Or is the greatest in your life the voice of Jesus who says, I don't necessarily want the tasks. I just want to be with you. Can you trust it? 
I think it's a backhanded way of Jesus pointing at himself and saying, I'm the least of all people. I'm just some little unknown rabbi who's walking around. My voice shouldn't necessarily matter all that much. And yet it is the voice of life. Will you let the least be the greatest? And then the disciples get confused because to them in this worldview is totally different from our world today. We look at people, uh, they would look at people who are wealthy and they would think God has had favor on them. It's not at all like our world today. We don't ever talk about that ever. Like we don't, we just don't see it. It's tongue in cheek. You can laugh at that. We for sure, when you look at somebody who's a huge house, kids, all the things, the possessions, all the stuff, there is just something natural in our human nature that we go, oh, they're blessed naturally that must be coming from God. And in this story, we've got the disciples looking at this guy who's like, he's got it all together. The trajectory on this guy's life is up and to the right. And Jesus is saying, ah, let's just get rid of it. <laughs> They're like, if, he, if he's going away sad, if he can't get into the kingdom of heaven, do we stand any chance? Like, we're just a bunch of poor kids that are following around a rabbi in the dust. Do we have a shot at this? I think Jesus takes a deep breath and he grins and he goes, let me tell you two things. First off, and now we're going to pick up our story in verse 23. Oh, sorry. Verse, yeah, verse 23. So Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded, and they said, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them, and he said, for mortals, this is impossible, but for God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, look, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Okay, <laughs> it's, a weird, it's a weird initial. He said, he's gonna tell him two things. This is the first thing he tells him. It's hard for the rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that the, there was a gate that was called the, the, cam, the eye of the needle, um, and it was hard to get a physical camel through this physical gate in the city of Jerusalem. As I've dug around, there's like a lot of weird, that's not necessarily a thing. Um, it might be, but I think we can for sure take the bank that Jesus is going, have you ever seen a needle, and have you ever seen a camel? It's that hard. Like, and the disciples are going, then how is this ever going to work for anybody? And he goes, look, it's not about what you do. For mortals, it's impossible. God can do this. And then he starts reminding these, these 12 students of his someday, this must have just blown their mind. I think they were like, is this a parable or is this like gonna happen? Like what, what are you talking about? You're gonna be judging the 12 tribes of Israel someday. It boggles my mind. I don't know what to do with the fact Judas is in the room for this. Um, what's Jesus getting at? Just hold that as, as you look at this story. I think that's a funny detail. But I think he's going, look, y'all, y'all are a big deal. You, you have a special role. And I think that was really at the core of Peter's question. I thought that guy was special. But we, we've given up everything. You're telling me that if we give up everything, that's the point. 
He just goes, you have given up everything. I am inviting you to that lifestyle, but, but Peter, I, I still just, I don't know that you're totally getting at what I'm after. Because Peter, what you're still asking for is, like, we're special, right? Like, we get a special designation. And I think Jesus is going, okay, how do I, how do I communicate? Let me tell you a story. So if we're going to understand what Jesus was trying to tell them in his first point, I think it's really helpful to understand what is his second point. And so he tells this story, and this kicks off chapter 20. Uh, you can follow along on the screen. I think um, it would be the most helpful uh, if you either shut your eyes or just imagine the scene. Um, I'll go back. We'll add some color to this as we go. But for you to really picture What's going on? What's the emotion that's in this story? It's, it's remarkable. Okay, here it is. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them out into his vineyard. And when he went out about uh, nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever's right. And so they went. And when he went out again at about noon, and then again at about three o'clock, he did the same. And then at about five o'clock, he went out again and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. So when those who were hired at about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. And now when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And then when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last ones worked only an hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last, the same that I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Okay. So weird. This weird. And he finishes it, I mean, the, the biggest clue of all is he finishes it with the exact phrase that he finishes, the first thing that he said to Peter. Peter, like, for people who have given up everything, they've come to follow me, you guys are going to sit on these thrones, the first will be last, and the last will be first. How else do I say it? Okay, let me tell you the story about this vineyard, and these guys came, and then they, more guys came, and they went out and found more guys, and, and the first will be last, and the last will be first. All of this swimming in the context of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is happening? I chewed on this so much this week. This is just, this is a head scratcher. And I think, um, I think yesterday some things started to click finally. And I, I, hope, I hope this is good and encourages you. Okay. In this day and age, people did not walk around with their, their Apple watches. Like, and there, there actually wasn't even a clock tower in the middle of town because they hadn't invented clocks quite yet. They did have sundials, and so the day was broken up for people uh, in hours of three. So the day started at 6 a.m., and so in this story, when the landowner goes out, it is six o'clock in the morning, and it was common practice, especially at harvest time in, in these communities, 
that if you wanted or needed a job, you would just go hang out in the middle of town and people would just come through and be like, hey, I need 10 people. We're going to come and we're going to be picking grapes at my vineyard. And you'd say, great, I'm on. And if you were a landowner, generally you'd do that once and you'd know here's exactly how many people I need and you would hire all of them in one go because you didn't want to be going back and forth, incredibly inefficient as a small business owner. And so in this story, we get some really strange details because he goes out at 6 a.m., first light, and he gets his crew. Then he goes out again at 9 o'clock because every three hours is when usually there would be a bell in town or something would ring to let you know, oh, this is what time of day it is. So when the nine o'clock bell rings, he goes back to the marketplace and there's still folks standing around. Now either this landowner miscounted how many people that he needed, but I think given how many times he goes back, I don't think that that's the case. I think it's pretty easy to read into the context. He grabbed everybody that was willing to come. And either there were people who initially just said, nah, I'm good. Can you hear Bess Wallace? Or there were people who were just lazy and they didn't quite get up at 6 o'clock and get into the ceremony. But in any case, at 9 o'clock, there's more people that are standing there. But he doesn't stop with just more people at 9. He goes out again at noon. And then he goes out again at 3. Like every time the bell rings, he's going into the marketplace to look for more workers. And then at 5 o'clock. Now, the day ended at 6 o'clock. That's generally when the sun went down. That's just when the workday stopped. And it's a crucial detail that at 5 o'clock, literally at the last hour, he's going out. This relentless pursuit. Can you hear Harry Truman? I'm not done chasing you. I'm not done inviting you. At the last hour, come. And then <laughs> it's, it's like a weird detail. If you're a small business owner, you want people to come back. You want high employee satisfaction, right? It's a weird thing that this guy specifically, specifically tells his payroll guy, hey, I want you to pay out everybody, but start with the people who just showed up. And it's almost as if he's saying, and make sure that the guys who have been here since 6 a.m. see the guys get paid who just got here at 5 p.m. I want them to see that. Low employee satisfaction with this, right? Because these guys, they get a denarii. That was, that was one day's wage. We talked about that last week. And you can see these guys who showed up for one hour of work in a vineyard. If you've ever done manual labor, it takes you about half an hour just to get the gloves on and figure out where you're supposed to go in the field. These guys did jack squat. <laughs> and they get a whole day's pay. And the guys who have been there busting it since 6 a.m. are watching this. And, and right away they go, oh, sweet. We're going to get even more than what he told us. This is awesome. And so then the guys come. who They got paid three. Uh, that came at 3 p.m. and noon and 9 a.m. And they're not seeing the pay shift very much. But they've been there since 6 a.m. And then we get this detail in the story. That here comes your denarii. And they go, what? What? Like, we've, we've been here all day. Yeah, that's what you agreed to. But the guys who just got here, are you catching this story? Like, this is, this is a weird story, especially if the context that he's painting this picture in is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What? I, how does any of this relate? And I read some really bad ideas about this. <laughs> um, 
One of them said, yeah, this is a story about how it will feel in heaven. Like for people who are Jewish, when we're in heaven, they will look at the Gentiles, like the people who weren't Jewish, and they got in later. And like, it'll be kind of this like, oh, that's frustrating, but we are family. Like, and, and like, that's, that's their interpretation of this, which I just want you to know, like, that's wrong. That, and I, I have, I've, I'm fine being very bold saying that is not what Jesus is getting at here. I'm confident in it. But if that's not what he's getting at, what is the point of this story? It's, it's just a strange story to tell in the midst of everything going on. So, let's remind ourselves of where we've come from so far. Jesus has been talking about children as he's answering the question, who is great in the kingdom of heaven? He's just come across a very grown-up child and this rich young man who's been doing all these tasks, but the invitation to this rich young ruler is come and be with me. Come understand what I'm like. I want to do life with you. And the disciples are totally thrown off. Like, what, what does this mean? <laughs> and then he tells this story about this vineyard. And I think the point, as he's looking at these guys, and as he's thinking about this rich young ruler whose silhouette he is still seeing crest the hill as he's on his way back home or to work, wherever he's going, he's saying, look, this is not a story about heaven someday. This is a story about the posture of your heart today towards people. Are you the type of person, Peter, who when you hear somebody say no, when you hear them decline the invitation, that you wipe your hands of it and you walk the other direction? Because Peter, that's not the life that I'm inviting you to. If you are going to properly judge Israel at the end of all things, it's the posture of your heart towards people that I want to address. In Discovery Church, this is now where the story starts to turn on a hinge and you can start to receive it as a participant in the story. How do you receive people? In the ways that they engage with you, in the ways that they engage in spirituality, is the first no enough to walk away? Can you hear Harry Truman in this? Jesus says, no, like my style, I go out at 6 a.m. and 9, and noon, and 3, and 5. Peter, what are you going to do? Because that dude's walking away. What's the posture of your heart that you would care for others? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus consistently says, it's this servant posture that I want you to understand. This servant posture like a child that you delight, that when you mess up and you fall down, you just, you get back up and you giggle and you dust yourself off and you go keep playing. This heart and, and this posture of a child that you trust that God is gonna be the one that cares for you. You don't have to worry about who you're gonna date or get married to someday, where you're gonna live or how much money you have. Trust me, come be with me. That's the point of this story. And serve did you notice what he said to the rich young ruler? Go sell all your possessions, give it away. Serve people, but that's a task. And then he says, and then come follow me. If you're gonna understand the heart that it takes to do this, you will have to learn it from me. So come be with me. So Peter, as you're engaging people, if they say no, if they walk away, is that it? And Peter, in the days and in the moments and in the actions where you say no to God or when you say no to me, is that it for you? Are you done? Learn my posture. 
come be with me. It doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for 80 years. It doesn't matter if you have no interest in following him. The posture of the heart of God says, man, I'm unchanging. I will be here, not in a forceful way, not in a way that's gonna shove a Bible down your throat or force you to do things, in a a posture like Harry and Bess. I'm gonna keep showing up because I love you. I'm gonna keep showing up because I just wanna wanna serve you. Because, Because the life that I want you to give, the life that I'm inviting you into, it's not just about you. This rich young ruler had done all this stuff right. He'd had this great house, like all these, what, what all the possessions, and it was just about him. And Jesus is saying, look, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's the one who cares enough about other people to keep going and to keep going and to keep going. And fundamentally, that comes with understanding that's my story. Jesus keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming to me. And if, if you can learn to live out of that posture, Peter, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's the one who serves. It's the one who loves like that. That's the invitation. Let me bring out the band as we land the plane on our message for today. But this is not a story of how we'll feel in heaven someday. It's a story of how we see people today. Do we have the compassion to keep going Do we ever consider ourselves too far gone? Do we consider somebody else is too far gone? If we've said no in the story once, if we've screwed up, is that it? Jesus is weaving this story together to say, I'll never stop. I'm never too big of a deal to keep inviting. People mean too much to me to stop. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll meet their most basic needs. I'll consider their well-being above my own. I'll love them. And I do wonder if Jesus ends this story and looks all the disciples in the eye and says, did you get it? And I I just, this is just me. This isn't in the Bible. I think the heart of this story would tell us that Jesus stands up, loosens up his shoulders, and he takes off in that same direction where the silhouette of the rich young man just disappeared because he's, he's not done yet. And he feels that way about you, and he feels that way about me. Do you want to be great? I think one of the things that we hear in the disciples is like, that's a silly question. It's a little arrogant. But I think my concern for myself is I'm not asking that question. Am I concerned with seeking to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Do I give this my all? Do I try that hard that I could even dare to ask that question? And then when the answer becomes, well, what's your posture towards people? What's your posture towards your own soul? Do you give up easy or do you keep going? To serve means to love like Harry. When God gets a no, he doesn't make it weird. He doesn't force. He doesn't get mad. He simply stays steady. And you're invited to do the same. How? Jesus says, come and be with me. You have to experience him for me first before you can live this way towards other people. And if you've been hearing this story your whole life, or if you're just hearing it today for the first time, and if you've never said yes, 
consider today one more time where you've been standing in the marketplace and the God of heaven is coming to you saying, hey, come home. Come be with me. I want to teach you how to do this. And I, I want to do it with you. Come be who you were always meant to be and with the one who you were always meant to be with. If that's something you'd like to talk about, there'll be some folks up front after our service today. But friends, this is a story about the posture of your heart towards others. We're going to take some time now um, to stand and to sing. In the midst of singing, uh, if you want to pause for a second and just do a system check, who are the people in my life? I sometimes just feel like they're too far gone. It's just not worth it. And if you're really, really willing to take the risk, where are the places in yourself where you go, I'm too far gone, too screwed up, that thing that I'm addicted to, that thing I can't stop doing, I just, it's just not even worth the energy. Invite Jesus into those spaces and continue to hear him say, just come be with me. Let's stand and sing together.